If you are a parent, you have probably experienced that with one or more of your children where they just repeatedly ask you questions and questions over again. And sometimes it's the why question which exasperates you because at some point you have to say, just because. Um, let me ask you this. If you had the opportunity to ask God just one question, what would it be? Well, for many of us, it might be a why question. Why is my boss impossible? Why did I get cancer? Why did my friend get cancer? Why did my family member get cancer? Why did that have to happen? Why did that happen to me as a kid? Why did she leave me? Why did he leave me? Why did you make me like you did? God, why do I look like I do? Why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? And we wrestle with questions like that. Now, some of our, I don't know, maybe some of you are like, man, that's a little deep for me. I don't know if I'd ask that question. So like maybe some of you would ask God, why can't I eat everything I want and not gain weight? You know, why can't I just eat all the chocolate I want? Or why isn't IU better at basketball this year? Why isn't Purdue better at basketball this year? Or maybe, um, can we just, why can't we just skip the spring break right now? Or why can't we just go from Christmas to spring break and skip all the stuff in between? So, you know, we ask God our questions from time to time. We wrestle with those serious ones, with the deep ones. Interestingly enough, God often doesn't answer our why questions. And um, you find that true in the Bible, too. There were people in the Bible who asked God why questions all the time. And his, his response is usually not to answer the why question. So he doesn't start out because often what he does is, he wants us to ask a different question. He wants us to ask the question, who? Or maybe grammatically correct would be, whom? Whom can you trust? Can you trust God? Can you trust that his ways are different than your ways? Can you trust that he sees the world differently than you do? That he has a different perspective? Can you trust that he's a good and loving and just God, even when you don't get it, even when you don't understand? Now, more than likely, most of us have been there where we've had some of those questions. There was a guy in the Bible who had the opportunity to ask God his question. Perhaps this is a question that had been lingering in his mind for years, maybe even his entire lifetime. And apparently he realized that Jesus, was, he sensed that Jesus was someone he could go to to ask his question. And the cool thing is, it's recorded in the Bible, so we get to listen in on this conversation this guy had with Jesus to see what his question was and how Jesus answered it. So what was his question? It was this. How do I get to heaven? Or more literally, he said, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you think about it, that's a pretty good question, isn't it? I mean, if you had just one question, that might be the one to ask. You cannot ask a more profound question than that, a question that the answer determines your eternal destiny. The answer tells you what's going to happen to you when you die. 
What if I told you that the way Jesus responded to him was to say, it's impossible. Now, before you react too strongly to that, which, by the way, the disciples, when they heard Jesus respond that way, reacted very strongly to that. Just know that we're going to come back to that and we'll um, talk about why Jesus responded to the guy that way as we go along this morning. This story that we're going to look at this morning is actually recorded in three of the four Gospels. We call them Gospels. They're those first four books of the New Testament. The New Testament is the second half of our Bible. They're those books that are written about Jesus and his life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This story we're going to look at this morning is actually recorded in three of them, which tells us it was a pretty significant event. We're going to go to the Gospel of Mark and look at the way it's recorded there and uh, just kind of sit back and watch this conversation between this guy and Jesus. Um, I'm going to start the story by reading Mark 10. It's in chapter 10, verse 17. Here's what it says. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running to him, knelt down, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's interesting that he recognized, apparently, who Jesus was, or he sensed something there. Did you notice he knelt down when he came to Jesus, which is a show of respect, clearly. And in addition to that, it says he came running to Jesus, which tells us, I think this guy was desperate. I think this guy was desperate to get an answer to his question. And just a quick spoiler alert, the question he asked, what do I do to inherit eternal life, is actually the wrong question to ask Jesus. Or, or maybe we should say it's worded the wrong way. You know, it, it's interesting just how many people think you have to do something to go to heaven or to inherit eternal life. I'm not sure exactly where all that comes from because the Bible is really clear that that's not it. For example, here's what Titus 3.5 says in the Bible. It says, He saved us not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy. That's pretty clear, isn't it? So I've often wondered where this idea that you have to do something to get to heaven came from. It's not in the Bible, that's for sure. Perhaps it's because we are, by nature, so performance-oriented. Hey, there's no such thing as a free lunch. You've probably heard that adage. Or, you know, if it's free, it's too good to be true. Maybe it's pride. We don't want to admit that we can't earn our way to heaven. So... Jesus is going to set out with this man to show him that it's impossible to do anything to get to heaven. By the way, this may appear to be really bad news. We're going to find out it's really good news. So check out what Jesus says next to the man. Um, this is Mark 10, verse 18. Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father or mother. Now, at first glance, 
It seems like Jesus is telling this man that he does have to do something. He has to keep the commandments, right? He has to do good. But actually, Jesus is being kind of sneaky in a Jesus kind of way, though. In other words, he's being sneaky good. Jewish people like to argue. That's just part of their culture. So going back and forth and creating a little tension in a conversation doesn't bother them at all. In fact, they enjoy that. They like that in a conversation. And that's what's happening here. Listen closely. What if Jesus is using this man's own belief system, namely that you have to do good to get to heaven, to show him that he isn't going to make it to heaven based on his very own system? So check out next how the man responds. Mark 10, 20. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Do you believe this man has obeyed all the commandments since he was young? Well, have you? Jesus gives a list of some of the Ten Commandments, and I think Jesus is giving him just a sample, just to make a point. But here's what he's implying when Jesus says to the guy, the list of the commandments for the guy, he says, have you always kept all of the commandments? I think the guy was sincere in his belief that he kept them all, but he was sincerely wrong. Have you ever been sincere? wrong. I'll never forget the time I walked into a hospital room and there beside the bed stood two women who strongly resembled each other. And have you ever had one of those moments where as the words were coming out of your mouth, you knew you wished you could take them back? Well, this was my moment. Um, I, I just thought I'd be friendly and start some conversation. So here's what I ask. I said, are you sisters? One of them loved the response. The other one, not so much. The mom thought it was great. <laughs> the daughter didn't appreciate it. I learned something that day. Don't ask questions like that. I mean, instead phrase it like, are you two somehow related or connected? Now, I was sincere. I was sincere in starting that conversation, trying to make conversation, but I was sincerely wrong in my approach. Sincere but wrong is still wrong. But so even though this guy talking to Jesus was sincere, let's face it, he had a fairly inflated view of just how good he was, didn't he? <laughs> Let me explain. He said he kept all the commandments. Jesus said if you get angry with someone, it's the same as murdering them in your heart. You ever gotten angry with somebody? Have you ever stolen? Now your first thought may be, well, no way. But have you ever stolen more than the allotted time you get at work? Have you ever taken something from work that wasn't yours, like even a pen or a stamp? Have you ever walked off from a hotel room with something that wasn't yours? Have you ever stolen someone's reputation by saying something bad about them behind their back? 
Have you ever committed adultery? Jesus said that if you lust in your heart after a woman, it's the same as committing adultery. Most guys stand guilty on that one. Have you always honored your father and mother? Mother, Have you always been respectful? Never disobeyed them? Never smarted off? Never had a defiant attitude towards mom and dad? Never? At this point, I'm thinking, stop, you know. I got it. I am guilty. Most of us can't even keep one of the Ten Commandments for a lifetime, let alone all of them. But this guy apparently and sincerely thought he lived a pretty good life. You see, most people who are depending on their works to get them to heaven have a skewed view or an of what it takes or an inflated view of their own righteousness. <laughs> you ever notice we tend to compare down instead of up when comparing ourselves to someone else? Well, I may not be perfect, but I'm not like him. I'm not like her. <laughs> so Jesus, in a very loving way, goes for the jugular. He goes right to the heart of the matter. Let's keep reading. Verse 21. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go, sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. I love the fact that we read that Jesus showed genuine love for the guy. I think Jesus appreciated his sincerity. This guy was a spiritual seeker. And he had the opportunity to ask his one question. And I really think Jesus respected the guy for choosing this question. But what does Jesus tell the man to do? To go sell all his possessions and give the money to the poor, and then he'll have treasure in heaven. And man, this gets all sorts of questions bouncing around in our head, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds like, does it not, that Jesus is saying that you do have to do something to get to heaven? It sure seems that way. And if you have to sell all your possessions, your home, your car, your phone, empty your bank accounts, your retirement savings, is that what you have to do to guarantee a spot in heaven? And isn't that asking a lot? But again, as I said earlier, Jesus is being kind of sneaky here in a good Jesus sneaky sort of way. What Jesus is doing is exposing the man. What if Jesus is doing this? What Jesus is doing is taking the guy's own belief system, namely you have to do good to get to heaven, to show him that he isn't going to make it on his own belief system. It sounds like Jesus is saying, you have to do something to get to heaven. Just do this one more thing and you'll have eternal life. Jesus is actually saying the opposite. Because we know that's not what Jesus taught, clearly. For example, these are Jesus' words in John 5, 24. He said, I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. And they will never be condemned for their sins. They have already passed from death into life. 
He doesn't say, do this, do that. No, it's not do this, not do that. It has to do with your faith, your belief in Jesus. So let's keep reading, and as we do, you'll begin to see what Jesus is up to. This is verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This amazed them. But Jesus said again, dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The key to understanding what Jesus is getting at is to look at what he said when he said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Because a camel can't go through the eye of a needle, right? Um, let me show you what I mean. And I think if we can see an actual size, a life-size image of a camel, this may help us a little bit. You know, camels were really common in that part of the world at that time. Um, you saw them everywhere. Jesus was near Jerusalem here, and uh, Jerusalem was real near the desert. So it would have been a very common thing for people to see camels. Now, what you see up here is about the actual size of a camel that I'm standing next to. So as you can see, they are a rather large animal. Um, by the way, uh, Last November, I took a group from the ridge to Israel, and when we were there, we had the opportunity to ride camels. I think if you were to ask those who went um, about that, or if they would ever ride on a camel again, here, here would probably be the response. Say, you know, it's, it was okay. You know, it's something you, you need to do once if you go. But if I never ride on a camel again, I'll be okay with that. Because it's not the most comfortable ride in the world. We rode out in the desert for like 20 minutes, kind of seemed like two hours. <laughs> um, it just kept going, it seemed like. And I want to show you just a sh real short video clip of us, that, your actual Ridge group, in Israel, in the desert, riding camels. But let me preface it by saying we edited the audio a little bit because sometimes you'll say things on camels that maybe you wouldn't want people to hear on Sunday morning. So just know this, there's a general rule, and that is what's said on a camel stays on a camel. All right, watch this. There you go. By the way, we're headed there again in October and November of 2021. So if you missed out on the last trip, um, you might be able to go next time. You'll hear more about that trip. But anyway, for Jesus to use the reference of a camel would have been something everybody's really familiar with because there were camels everywhere. Now, what Jesus said was, um, he talked about a camel going through the eye of a needle. Look up here. I'm holding a needle in my hand. Can you see this needle? Probably not. Maybe some of you closer. Him. Why don't you zoom in as close as you can? And um, if you want to look on the screen, you can see if you can see this needle or not. But what Jesus said is that a camel cannot go through the eye of a needle. Um, the eye of the needle, of course, you're familiar with. It's right here on the end. This particular needle, the diameter of this eye is probably about 25 hundredths of a millimeter. It's really small. For a camel, this camel, for her to go through the eye of this needle, she would need to be 375 times smaller, okay? Now, just suppose you're going, yeah, but maybe needles were bigger in those days. 
So let's just suppose the eye of the needle was the size of a penny. I don't know if you can see this penny I'm holding or not, but just suppose it was a little larger. So if the eye of the needle is the size of a penny, and let's just say we take this camel and we put her on her knees and have her crawl through the eye of a needle the size of a penny. She would still need to be 75 times smaller than she is. You, you, you see the point here? <laughs> I think those standing around got it. Because they say, who can make it then? Jesus. Mark 10, 26 six says this. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they ask. Who in the world can be saved. What they're saying is, Jesus, the standard you're giving us here is impossible. Nobody's going to measure up to that. And if this guy doesn't make it, this rich man who's talking to Jesus, nobody's going to make it. This guy had done everything right. He thought he'd kept all the commandments. And I'm sure from the disciples' perspective, this guy was much better off than they were. I mean, I think we would at least agree, agree this guy may have been sincere, but sincerely wrong. But he was still a very good guy, right? I mean, he volunteered at church. He was on the Big Brother Big Sister board. He called his mom every day, and he bought Girl Scout cookies. He bought Lemon Ups, by the way. And in those days, they believed that you had to do good to have a right standing with God and to go to heaven. So apparently this guy was a pretty moral guy. So the disciples looked at him and said, this guy, if anybody's got a pretty good shot at it, you know? Let's face it. He had a much better shot at it than any of them had, the disciples. I don't know if you know much about the disciples, especially before they met Jesus, but not a one of them was up for citizen of the year. Peter was abrasive. Matthew, before he met Jesus, had cheated people out of money. That's how he made his living. Judas stole from the disciples' expense account. How bad is that? So you see, if you go with a do-good belief system, this guy, this rich guy, he was a shoe-in. Let's think through the do-good approach for a moment. And, and to do that, um, let me just make a scale. Top of this scale, we'll give it a 10. Bottom's a 1. There's about halfway. 10 means... Perfect, all right? Never done anything wrong your entire life. One, not so good. Now, who would we put at the, close to the top of the scale? Well, someone who comes to mind is Mother Teresa. I mean, not only was she a good person, but she spent most of her life helping other people. So let's give her, we're gonna give her a 9.5. Okay? But you know what? The reason that's not a 10, a 9.5, is I've even heard Mother Teresa say that she knew she wasn't perfect. She admitted that she had sinned in her life. Now, this rich guy said he had kept most of the commandments all, most of his life. I, I believe him. I think he was a pretty moral guy. Let's give him an 8 on this scale. Now, where would we put me on this scale? Before we answer that question... Um, let me give you some perspective here. If you're going to put me up here, let's take my sister. 
She's going to have to be hiring me, I can tell you that. Um, I grew up with her, and I was the younger brother, and it was tough growing up with her. She was like the sweetest, nicest, kindest person in the world, and I was not. So <laughs> she's going to have to get ranked a little, let, let's just put it this way. She never shot the paper boy with the BB gun, all right? So <laughs> I'm going to put my sister right here. And I'm guessing if you were to rank me, you would probably rank me higher than I would rank me. You'd go, well, dude, you're a pastor. Of course you're going to get ranked pretty. You don't know me that well if you think that way, all right? You see me on Sunday morning, if you only knew. So I'm going to, like, put myself right here. I'm going to give myself a four. Now, where would all of you be? Well, just for the sake of grouping it together, we're going to say that all of you, if you average them together, you guys are a five, all right? You come in at a five. And down at the bottom, a one, we're going to put the worst of the worst. We'll probably we'd say murderers. Um, people who complain about sermons that are long. You know, just <laughs> the very worst of the worst. New England Patriot fans, all right? <laughs> yeah, that worked last week, so I thought I'd come back to it. And I better give myself a three, because it looks like I misspelled murderers there. <laughs> we'll throw an R in there. Can't spell. Well, I just lost a point for that. Okay, so... Here's my question. You know, you see how this system works. How do you know? If you're on a do-good system, and that's how it's evaluated, it's a guessing game. You just don't know. When have I done enough? And what happens if I do something that disqualifies myself? And like, what if the cutoff line, you guys are a five, what if the cutoff line ends up being a 5.5 and you guys don't make the cut? But Jesus' whole point is to show this guy and to show us that if you're relying on the do-good system to get to heaven, you are in trouble. Everybody's in trouble. Why? Because Jesus lets us know what the standard is. And what is the standard in a do-good belief system? At the 10. Perfection. You got to be perfect. Impossible, right? And that's Jesus point. That's why Jesus told this guy to go sell everything he has and give it to the poor. It wasn't because this guy could earn his way to heaven by doing that. Jesus just wanted to show this guy that he wasn't as good as he thought he was. This guy thought he'd met the requirements for going to heaven, but Jesus knew what was in his heart. He knew his possessions were really his God. So even though he could thought he could check all these commandments off the list and say, I've kept the commandment. Actually, he was guilty of not having kept the very first commandment, which says, don't have any other gods before you because money was his God. That's what was important to him. Now, at that point, those who were standing around and listening to this conversation, that's why they said, who in the world can be saved? 
Check it out. This is verse 27. Well, I'll start with verse 26 and read verse 27 in Mark 10. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, Humanly speaking, it is impossible. But, not with God. Everything is possible with God. The disciples are astounded. Jesus just set the standard so high, nobody could make it. Impossible. But then Jesus adds, you know what? What's impossible with you is possible with God. Now we're on to something. Jesus is saying that we're going to have to rely on God. That's why Jesus sets out to show this man that he can't make it on his own and to tell us that we can't make it on our own. It's impossible to make it on our own. That's exactly why Jesus came into our world. To die on the cross to pay for our sins. He took our sins on himself. He was our substitute. The Bible talks about the payment for sin being death. Death means separation. Separation from God in this life and separation from God eternally in the next life. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Free gift through Christ Jesus our Lord. However, the Bible also says that Jesus died in our place for our sins so that we would not have to experience death. Romans 5.8 says, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Our response is to accept what Jesus has done for us by faith. Our only way to heaven is to rely on Jesus and what he's done for us. That takes trust, repentance, humility, surrendering your life to God. And so that's why a verse like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 in the Bible says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation isn't a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. That's actually really, really good news, isn't it? I can get off the treadmill of trying to do good, to meet some unattainable standard, and instead rely on what Jesus has done for me. That is so freeing. In other words, it's not what we do, it's what Jesus has already done for us. It's impossible to do enough to make it to heaven our own. Have you ever tried swimming to Europe? You wouldn't make it, would you? I mean, people even try to swim the English Channel. A lot of them don't even make that. No matter how hard you try, you're not going to make it if you try to swim. But you can get on a plane and trust the pilot to get you there. Now, someone might say, yeah, Jerry, but if Jesus did it all and I don't do anything, I just trust what he did for me, well, then what's to say people aren't just going to do that and just go out and live like they want? No way. If you genuinely understand what Jesus has done for you and accept that, it's transformational. You want to live in a way that is pleasing to God. 
Not so you can get to heaven, but because of love and gratitude for what Jesus has done for you. So you please God because you want to. It's a joy to. It's not about rules. It's about a relationship. You live in peace, knowing that your eternal destiny is secure in what Jesus has done for us. That's why the Bible calls what we're talking about this morning good news. I'd like to give you a moment to get alone with your thoughts. So would you bow your heads? You can make that decision to surrender your life to Jesus and put your faith in what he's done for you right now, right here. It's just a matter of telling him that you sincerely mean it from your heart. It's not a decision you have to make over and over again. You know, Jesus' words, if you remember, we read it earlier, John 5, 24 said, once you believe in him, you already have eternal life from that point forward. And when you make that decision, your sins are forgiven. You become a child of God. So you have a relationship with him in this life. He's there to walk with you throughout this life. And he gives you the promise of eternal life when you die. But God lets you make that decision. And you know, if you'd like to right now, you can. Just pray silently to God and mean it in your heart. Pray something like this. God, I know I've sinned. I know I fall short and can't make it to heaven on my own. But Jesus died in my place to be my Savior. I'm sorry for my sins, and I want to rely on Him. Today I'm surrendering my life to You. Thank You, God, for forgiving me and giving me the promise of eternal life. Amen. God's promise to you is if you sincerely make that decision, you can know you're going to heaven. I'd like to close us in prayer. God, thank you for allowing us to listen in on this story and to hear Jesus' words that it's possible with God to make it to heaven. Thank you, Jesus, for making a way for us. And my prayer for each of us this morning is that we could just clearly understand and we would open up our hearts, our minds to you and accept the forgiveness that you have offered us, Jesus, because there is victory in Jesus, and it's in his name I pray. Amen.